San Diego's talk radio leader, 760 KFMB presents It's Your Money and Your Life. For the next hour, Richard Musio and Joe Vecchio will educate and inform you on matters related to your financial future, your life, and your leisure. Now, with It's Your Money and Your Life, here are Richard and Joe. Good evening, everybody. This is Richard Musio. That was false advertising because there is no Joe. Joe. Joe gets a day off occasionally, so it's Richard Musio, but I do have a co-host in studio with me, even though she's not my producer. We also have a great guest on the line that we'll get to in a couple of minutes, but I have Kathy Kinane, prior guest, a few times on the show. Kathy, of course, is, along with me, the co-founder of the Oceanside Turkey Trot, eighth largest turkey trot in the country now, something we're very proud of, and the Move Your Feet Before You Eat Foundation. So, Kathy, thanks for filling in for Joe. Happy to be here. Looking forward to talking to Susie. It'll be fun. But before we get to Susie, I know, Kathy, I just wanted to announce, it's sort of public knowledge, but it's always great to get this across the airwaves. You just won a very prestigious award associated with the Oceanside Turkey Trot. Did you not? Tell us about it. I'm pretty happy Mayor Wood decided to recognize myself and the rest of our group for our 10 years of contributing to the community of Oceanside by putting on the Oceanside Tur- Pacific Marine Credit Union Oceanside Turkey Trot, which last year attracted people from 421 cities to Oceanside on Thanksgiving Day. About 10,000 runners. We've, I know, raised close to a quarter of a million dollars for the city's um, charities, a lot of them being the public schools. Yes, indeed. It's been a great run, and we're so happy to have such a collaborative group that we work with in Oceanside, the schools, the city, uh, the Oceanside Boys and Girls Club. Many of the nonprofits are bringing out large groups to participate in the event. And our great sponsors, Pacific Marine Credit Union, Genentech, Tri-City. Couldn't do it without all of those folks. But, yeah, that was that was a nice event. We went out there in the middle of the hurricane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm driving in the light vehicle, and the alarm keeps going off for, uh, what is it, flooding, flash floods. Beware of a flash flood. Yeah, flash flooding on, on the beaches in <laughs> yes. Southern California. But we, we made it alive, and it was a really cool event. So that, that was a great honor. So, again, congratulations, and thanks again for everything you do for the community. Thanks, Richard. Uh, but that being said, let's get to our guest, Susie Faber-Hamilton. Are you on the line? I am. Neat. We've got Susie Faber-Hamilton on the line. This is a show about running as well as about mental illness. And um, Susie, of course, um, welcome. We very much appreciate you being on. Um, we usually talk to our guests first about their history, you know, where they were born, where they went to school, what they did in school, how you became a three-time Olympic team runner. And um, so, again, welcome to the show. But if you could just give us some brief, brief background on, on how you came to be. Sure. And thanks for having me on the show. So I was born in a small town in Wisconsin called Stevens Point and lived there all my life till I went to college at the University of Wisconsin. And I started running at a very early age. I just kind of discovered it on my own in gym class and um, I used to run around the nature trails by my home, and it's kind of silly, but um, I would pretend I was a horse as a young child, and I'd gallop through these trails and the wooded trees, and it just felt so easy, and it, it made me it, it made my brain feel really good. I yeah, I, I, I wish I wish running felt easy for me, um, but um, I still do it anyway. So you, you, you then grew up in Wisconsin. You wound up at University of Wisconsin, correct? I did because um, the year that I went to college there, they had just, the year before, they had just won the national championship in cross-country. Mm-hmm. So they were the number one school uh, in cross-country in okay. the nation. 
Yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah. And I, I know yeah. you were you um, won how many national championships while there? Um, nine. Is that so is that still the record? Busy. I believe so. I'm not sure if somebody tied it uh, or not. Okay, that's still very impressive. Yeah. Thanks. And then I know it you went on. Busy. I know uh, Kathy Kinane, who's here with me. Kathy wound up um, being, of course, track coach at University UCAL Santa Barbara from around eighty to eighty. Three and then was an Olympic qualifier at the marathon distance. What what distance did you typically run? Oh, in, um, oh, go ahead. <laughs> so I was a fifteen hundred meter runner. Oh, you're fifteen hundred. Gotcha. Yeah, okay. that was before they had the ten thousand meters, and gotcha. then finally the marathon because I was too slow to do it in any other event, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but what were your favorite distances, Susie? Um, definitely. You know, I would have loved to have been an eight hundred meter runner because it's only two laps around the track, Mm -hmm. a lot less pain, but um, I wasn't quite fast enough, um, so the miles, I fit into that event perfectly. Okay. Yeah, that's, uh, the mile does get over pretty quickly. That's one of the nice things about it. So how how many different, uh, how many different Olympic teams or what years did you represent the U.S.? So I was on the team in 92, which was in Barcelona, and then 96, um, Atlanta, and then 2000, Sydney. Okay. Any any one stick out in your mind as your favorite? Um, I would say my favorite was, you know, making my first Olympic team was the most exciting. Because here you are as a child always wanting the dream of making the Olympic team. So, so that was really exciting, the opening ceremonies. But I have to say the competition part, um, it was not my favorite, mm-hmm. that's for sure. Sure. Just struggling with the mental components of racing is, you know, was always something I had to deal with and didn't know why. Right. So, for example, when you were in high school and, and competing very successfully in college and beyond, you, you obviously had to be extremely focused, extremely, I guess you could say, single-minded, um, maybe not even have a normal yeah. life. Is that correct? It's, it's so true. You know, and looking back in sports, you know, I'm always – you know, contemplating, should I have been more balanced? Should I have had other interests? And then this other side of me says, well, you know, to be the best, you have to really focus on that one thing. Mm-hmm. And because the other runners are doing the exact same thing. Sure. But in hindsight, it would have been healthier for me to have more balance and have something else in my career, whether it was a job or, or something else besides the running, even though running was a job, mm-hmm. but just something else to get balanced. Sure, makes sense. Uh, so, Susie, did your coaches work at all with you on that, preparing for? Never. That's yeah, disappointing. They didn't. Yeah, they don't, you know, in college, and, and you would probably know better, and I bet you you were a lot different, but it's almost like they have you for four or five years, and they just want to get the best out of you. And, you know, if you're injured, you still run on injuries. They're, you know, if you're, if you're suffering from an eating disorder, it's overlooked. These things happen during my time um, in the 80s. I think it's a lot better now. But, no, there was never any talk about what are you going to do beyond running. It was always she's just going to be a runner. She's going to be an Olympic runner. Sure. And how, in terms of eating, did, did you have normal eating habits or did you have some issues there? I did, and I developed those in high school. And looking back, there was some runners that 
there was one in particular who beat me at the national championship for cross country and and it's held in San Diego. Mm -hmm. It it was called Bikini. Now it's called uh, Footlocker. And this woman or this girl who beat me was basically a skeleton. And I I actually connected with her recently on Facebook, but she was so skinny and she won that I perceived lightness with running fast. Mm And that's when when the eating disorder started, is when I started to see girls that were sick then. I didn't understand that they were risking their health. They were unhealthy. They were getting bone problems, maybe not have children someday, not getting their periods, so many issues. But as a young girl, you don't think about those. You're just thinking about that moment. Yeah, and I I think, you know, obviously I think it's incumbent on coaches to try to treat or treat or coach the entire individual, I, th- I think to the extent that people are developing habits that might prove to be counterproductive, that certainly doesn't justify winning in any sport, right. individual or team oriented. I know it's hard yeah, because it's, obviously they're, they're incentivized to compete and to win and be national and champions. And they're in or, denial. And when you have an eating disorder, especially, you know, when you have no um, idea that what you're doing is wrong, mm-hmm. you're in denial. Yeah. So if somebody tells you to get healthy and eat, that's the last thing a runner is going to do. Yeah, it's absolutely. a psychological disorder right. that needs to be treated. And many times parents are in denial that their child might have a mental illness or have something wrong. Right. They don't want to admit that. Of course. Hey, Susan, we've got to take a quick break, so sit tight. Sure. We're going to be right back with It's Your Money and Your Life, our special guests, Kathy Kinane and Susie Faber-Hamilton. We're not running on empty, although I will be at about mile 12 of the Carlsbad Half Marathon. <laughs> anyway, we're back with Hit Your Money in Your Life. Susie Faber-Hamilton online, also Kathy Kinane here in studio. Kathy, I know you had a question following up on our discussion about, about healthy diet. Yes, that running on empty definitely brings it up. You know, it's just tragic. Is it lunchtime yet? <laughs> it's lunchtime. It's just I'm tragic that these coaches <laughs> don't talk to the athletes about, you know, the power of good nutrition and how important it is to have good fuel in order to be successful. And um, hopefully when you're out there talking about your book as part of your mission, you can talk to these young athletes, female and male, about how critical it is to have, you know, a healthy diet from stuff that's grown out of the earth, not out of a box, and for not doing things like bulimia where um, I remember at UCSB we went up to an invitational at Berkeley and all these women at the table were eating iceberg lettuce, and I definitely felt out of it. That was all that was on their plate was iceberg lettuce, and I thought, okay, uh, the future in running is not for me because I'm definitely not going to eat iceberg lettuce. But, you know, it's just tragic. It's horrible. And I think that there's a lot of coaches that prey on the young athletes' version of being perfectionist for having the ideal body, for being, you know, running until they drop. You know, there's a lot of stories about female athletes who, I think back in the 80s, we had one who, when she didn't win, she jumped off a bridge and was crippled. And, you know, it broke my heart that uh, the NC2A didn't look into it and into coaching techniques that encouraged these athletes to basically run themselves to death. And they didn't look into the mental aspect of it. Like, you know, when somebody is taking their life or attempting to even take their life or thinking about it, these things have to be addressed and they have to be brought up nationwide, you know, the educational part. And I know when um, 
Miss um, Ormsby, who jumped off the bridge, um, she, you know, it would be great to have psychologists, sports psychologists, uh, you know, to talk to people, especially after that happened. I don't know how much education was done to the different runners in the country. I know at Wisconsin there wasn't any therapy to explain to runners why she did this. Um, where, you know, she didn't do that on purpose. She didn't want to jump and kill herself. Um, and she, thank God she didn't die. It was the brain, the chemical imbalance in the brain. And people have to understand that. Well, a lot of it, too, I think, comes from the NC2A coaching. I was the only female in the Pac-10 back then in the early 80s. And I remember going to the meetings and uh, Brooks Johnson was there. And at the Stanford Invitational, he was in the middle of the track and he was yelling at Ellen Lyons, saying things that I would never yell at anyone. And I thought, wow, doesn't somebody need to talk to this guy about verbal abuse towards this woman who was a Stanford student and former national champion? You should not speak to her the way he was speaking to her. And yet, you know, that same weekend they voted him coach of the year. And I think that the NC2A needs to look into that and uh, try to deal with these these young women who have so much potential and – I don't think they necessarily thrive in such a negative environment. And I asked Patty Sue about that, you know, that verbal abuse that these coaches often dole out to these athletes who want to please everybody to the point of, you know, committing suicide or attempting to, or just every night being depressed, depressed enough to, you know, throw up or take laxatives. Right. Yeah, that, that's yeah, a tough one. Hey, yeah. Susie, uh, if we asked a question that's too personal, you know, feel free just to tell us. But uh, growing up, uh, did you have a normal childhood? I mean, was your, was your family so-called normal, or, or were there some issues in your family that might have contributed to um, how your career played out? Um, so are you asking me that one? Yeah, I'm asking you that one. Okay, Susie. yeah. Well, you know, I grew up with a brother who was bipolar. Okay. And gr- growing up, seeing the things that go along with the illness were, were very traumatic. And growing up in a small town, you know, the people perceive themselves as the Brady Bunch family on the sure. outside because there is so much gossip in small towns, people talking. And mm-hmm. um, so we had the perfect image on the outside, whereas, you know, inside here, my brother is, you know, doing some really um, traumatic things. Sure. And I saw these, and it was hard to understand why. I always thought, why can't he just behave? Why can't he be a good kid? Mm-hmm. Why does he have all these behavioral problems? And it wasn't behavioral problems. It was bipolar. Sure. But the illness wasn't discussed in the family. So, so, I so in other words, there was, there was silent. Meaning, so your family was yeah. sort of, so to speak, silent about things. Yeah, and, you know, back then I've I've talked to so many people, and they're like, yeah, that's how my family was. It's just a lot of how we grew up. I'm not saying that every family was like that, but um, in my family it was, and I felt if I won races, I could make up for the pain that my parents were going through. I could bring good attention to the family, and, and I did that. I mean, a lot of my parents' happiness was, you know, you go to the grocery store. Oh, your daughter's so wonderful. She won this race. She's so perfect. You know, there was so much feedback, positive feedback from my performances that made them very happy, which which I think is normal for a lot of parents. But I based it on solely making them happy. 
But, but isn't there a lot of pressure there? Because, I mean, you're representing the family, and then if you live in a small town, you're probably representing the town. And then if you go to your state university, you, you're probably representing all of the people of Wisconsin every time you race. Yeah, and, you know, in hindsight, I wanted to go to UCLA so okay. bad. But I remember when I was being recruited, the academic advisor he was really pushing to get me into the school because my grades were so poor. Mm. And he said, you know, we can get you in. We'll make an exception. We can definitely get you in. It's going to be very tough for you. We'll have tutors, but I think we can get you through. And I think that that scared me. I, I really didn't want to be somebody that dropped out because of her grades. And going to Wisconsin. I felt that they were actually, it wasn't going to be as difficult, and they were going to really help me sure. to get through college. And were the and low grades? I knew, I knew I had a learning disability going into okay. um, into college. High school, I struggled. I got Ds um, that magically became Bs. Mm-hmm. Um, no, none of the teachers wanted to fail me. They sure. didn't want to be the one that ruined Susie's career. And I suffered from um, ADHD, which nobody knew until a year ago. And since I've been on the medication for this, my life has changed in just the last year. In my education, I can't put books down. I I feel like, wow, for the first time, I'm learning, and this is exciting. Where you know, It's such a shame that it didn't get diagnosed early on. Yeah, although, I mean, I know treatment methods, identification methods are much better now than they ever have been, I think. Um, I mean, that, that's certainly been positive. Um, yeah. Um, but you, you um, so, so post-Wisconsin, then you ran um, three Olympics. What, at about what age did you um, retire from competitive racing or approximately what year? I, yeah, I was 37 years old, so it was... 2005, roughly, like, right after my daughter was born, I knew I didn't want to compete. I knew before that I didn't want to compete. I wanted to retire five years ago in 2000. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was the pressure of she has a talent. If she throws it away, um, that's just not going to look good. So I didn't feel like I had an option to retire. I didn't feel like I had a voice my whole life to speak up. Mm-hmm. because I was always trying to please and make everybody happy. I never thought about what's really good for me would be to retire and find a new life that mm-hmm. fulfilled me. What 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 avenues of interest did you have that you could have utilized? Yeah, I was ever since I had been in preschool, art had been a passion. They couldn't pull me from the easel. And then I studied art in college and just loved it. Um, My creativity just skyrocketed. Whenever I was in front of a canvas, I could um, paint or draw or just work with color and design so easily that I would have gone that route. You know, know, there's there's a lot of uh, long-distance runners that I know that are very artistic. And, you know, now work in communications and are able to express themselves. I think that that's definitely a choice for you. Yeah. Another thing with um, with my illness being diagnosed bipolar, um, one of the signs of there's a lot, but one of them is this creativity. Exceptional creativity Mm -hmm. goes along with being bipolar. And um, 
obviously I had that, but that was just too early to diagnose. Just because you're creative, you have creativity doesn't mean you're bipolar. But it is one of the signs now. And looking back, my brother sure. was incredibly creative. These hey, ideas. Susie, I apologize. We have to take a quick break. We're coming yeah. up on our, our down hour break here. We're going we're gonna to be right back with Susie Favor Hamilton and my in studio guest, Kathy Kinney, right here on It's Your Money and Your Life. New sports and weather. Sit tight. Be right back. Welcome back. It's your money and your life. This is a time when Richard thanks the sponsors. That's what Joe always says, so I'm saying it to myself. I speak to myself a lot, and frequently I don't even listen to myself. But big thank you to our sponsors, UBS with Michael Carancha and Drew Freitas, also our favorite CPAs on the planet, Jason Kruger, CPA with Signature Analytics, also Polito Epic Associates in lovely San Marcos, Don Epic, CPA, and Paul Polito ramping up for tax season. Also Joel Grushkin with Cost Segregation Initiatives, helping real estate owners improve their cash flow. New best-selling author Carl Sheeler with Berkeley Research Group, helping businesses understand the risks that drive their businesses, reduce the risk, increase the value. That's Berkeley Research Group. Brenda Geiger with Geiger Law Offices, specializing in estate planning and asset protection. Also, California Republic Bank, a niche market bank that works with family offices and wealthy families who own businesses and real estate here in Southern California. Neil Staley, Hub International, a great employee benefits firm, one of my favorites, well, they're all my favorites, LG Experience and the Lombardi Group, helping wealth advisors become heroes to CPAs, so CPAs can be heroes to their very best clients. Paul Hines with Hearthstone Wealth Management. Paul heads up the SeniorSafeAndSound.org initiative here in San Diego, helping to prevent elder financial abuse. And last but not least, Servant Leadership Institute, having their national conference here in San Diego, March 6th, 7th, and 8th. Check out ServantLeadershipInstitute.com. For more information about that, we're going to have some of the presenters at that institute on the show coming up here soon. So, again, a big thank you to all of our sponsors where you can learn more about them at our award-winning website that talks about our award-winning radio show, iymoney.com. But back to our guest online, Susie Faber-Hamilton. So, Susie, um, I guess you could summarize saying that trying to transition into a post-athletic life was a bit of a challenge for you? Yeah, it definitely was a challenge, and you know, I basically had to give up my life and eat, sleep, train mm-hmm. to be at that top level. It was, yeah, it was difficult. And then I know, and I guess for our listeners, this is maybe the more sensitive part of the show. Your bipolar disorder started to exhibit itself in sort of a different way than I guess most people who have bipolar. Can can you briefly describe that as sensitively as you can? What what happened to you post running career? Yeah, and let me just um, kind of correct something. Yeah. I think, you know, I know with bipolar, one of the symptoms is hypersexuality. Okay. Whether, you know, for me, I was also had a double whammy because I was given a drug um, that also brought on the hypersexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe if I wasn't given that drug, I wouldn't have gone that route. Sure. But bipolar in itself also brings on a hypersexuality. It's just something that really has not been talked about. I mean, even psychiatrists um, and psychologists don't want to bring up the hypersexuality. In, in some people, they're, they're embarrassed, and they, the patient is embarrassed bringing that up. So it's something that isn't discussed 
like it should be. Well, say, I mean, certainly, yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the stigma that society can place on, I mean, well, you know, one of the themes of our radio show or a continuing theme is the theme of acceptance and inclusion and tolerance. But um, one of the reasons it's our theme is because I think there's not enough acceptance, inclusion, and tolerance in the world. Uh, and, and so obviously that particular symptom, uh, you know, a lot of people, I guess, might place judgment on that. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. They do. And a lot of people, I think in my case, because of um, the route I went, they like to say, oh, she's blaming that mm-hmm. um, is, you know, she's blaming the sex and saying that that's, you know, the bipolar. It truly is real that this is part of something that goes along with bipolar. This is a symptom. Mm-hmm. Overspending, hyperactivity, risky behaviors. And my risky behaviors came through sex. It could be drugs. It could be alcohol. You're looking for that coping mechanism, but it is a risky, risky behavior that makes it different than maybe, let's say, a sex addict. Um, it, there's, there's a difference, a big difference in the two. Sure, and I know so you, you, my, wrote a, you wrote a book yeah. um, that's, I guess, becoming a bestseller called Fast Girl. My wife, Mary, read it, by the way, thought it was great. I just peeked at it a little bit here to get ready for um, this interview. I have to admit I haven't read it yet, although I did read bits and pieces to get ready um, in preparing last night. Uh, but can you briefly briefly describe uh, how, how all of that played out for you in terms of um, uh, the decisions you made and, and where you wound up and what you did briefly? Um. So um, can I explain that question again? Uh, again, you, you, the hypersexuality caused you to, shall we say, take on a new career, correct? Right, right, yeah. right. A new, basically a whole new identity, yeah. a, a, a double new life, life. A new identity, I, however you want yeah. to word it, yeah. My, my personality changed. I became a different person when I discovered um, these manic episodes. Mm-hmm. I didn't know at the time... I was bipolar, and I was having a manic episode. But when I went to Vegas, it brought out the mania. And mania is this just incredible, overwhelming feeling of joy. And so when you're put in that state, why in the world would you want to be taken out? And so for me, um, I couldn't get out because that feeling was pulling me in so deep. And it's just, it just so happened that I got involved experimenting that drove me to the route of becoming an escort. And it was only going to be one time I was going to experiment and nobody would know just this little secret. And everybody has secrets. Um, Mine just happened to get exposed because of the bipolar. I didn't have rational thinking in what I was doing and went to all extremes of actually being exposed. I didn't have the knowledge or the right brain to tell me what you're doing is not right. Didn't have that. Now that I'm on a medication that's leveled my brain, I know right from wrong. I'm not delusional. I'm, you know, I'm at a good place. And so I know you're... Your career in Vegas, so to speak, wound up, I guess, ending because a a journalist wound up um, writing an article, correct, exposing you? Is that right? Right, correct. Okay. And this journalist, let me tell you, is in the business of ruining people's lives. Sure, I mean, their and job is to dig up dirt. 
on people, unfortunately. Yeah. So I have, yeah, I have no, you know, nothing, nothing truly good to say about him mm-hmm. in that he could have so easily have taken my life. Sure. Because of what he did made me incredibly depressed, and I did attempt suicide. So, you know, his job in what he did is just mind-boggling. How could somebody live with themselves in destroying people's lives? And the chances of taking somebody's lives or it is very great. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, he did out me that that pulled me out. But I still, I still think um, of this person. I don't want to glorify him in any way possible because what he is doing is wrong yeah well unfortunately we live in the age of reality tv where everybody thinks everybody else's business is their own and we also unfortunately function in sound bites so people get labeled as this or that or the other and that's unfortunately all the attention span anybody has to you know pay on pay to that particular topic and it's very un very unfortunate. Um, so obviously it must have been very difficult for you when the news came out. Um, I mean, family, friends, reputation, business, all of those things. I mean, it must have just been like a tsunami of, of it was, probably yeah. negative response, right? Yeah, it was awful. Um, I was able to tell my family, my husband's family, two weeks in advance because the tabloid guy had given me time mm, to okay. prepare Sure. So my the blow on my family wouldn't be as harsh, but it was not easy. And that's when one of my suicide attempts happened, mm-hmm. um, was right when the story came out. I have to say, in the first day that the story came out, we received 600 emails. Wow. And the first, the first emails that came in were just brutal. These are the people that just, you know, throw hate. Right. They're so upset with themselves that they have to throw hate out to make themselves feel sure. better. But it was the ones that came like later in the day or the next day where they actually thought about it and knew, okay, something's terribly wrong Mm -hmm. here. We knew this person, and we can't believe that that, she would choose that freely. So something something is wrong, and they didn't place judgment. But there were a lot of people and so much speculation, but um, I was in no position to talk or tell what was going on because I was in such an unhealthy state. My my husband even came up with a statement immediately for me because, you know, I was, I was gone. I was not present in reality anymore. So, um, yeah, I needed a lot of help. Well, it's, good that, it's good that you've gotten a lot of help. Hey, we've got to take our last quick break with It's Your Money in Life. So everybody sit tight. We're going to be right back with Kathy Kinane and Susie. Faber Hamilton right after these brief messages. Sit tight. All right, born to run. Yeah, I told people before the break, sit tight. I should tell people, get up while the commercials are on and run around your kitchen table. It's a lot better for your heart and your health. And then sit back down and listen to the rest of the show, right? Hey, Kathy, you had, you had a quick question. I did. You know, when I was in college, I found a Pretty good correlation between running and mood, as I'm sure you have, where when you run, you feel better, and it's great treatment for depression. And so as a coach, I'd have my athletes take little psychological tests to kind of get an idea about their mental status. Did your coaches do any of that with you so that they could have picked up on um, some of your challenges at that time during college or afterwards? 
never. There weren't, you know, we didn't have sports psychologists at our school. We, we were, I was raised to be the tough athlete. Never admit any of your weaknesses. Don't admit that there might be something chemically or mentally not right in your thinking. Mm-hmm. So unfortunate. Yeah, it's sad. Well, hopefully the bipolar foundation that you're with, maybe you can encourage some of the race directors or some of the people who manage large database to reach out to the runners to have them evaluate some of their, uh, you know, psychological states. Because, like I said, I think, you know, running and exercise itself is such great treatment for depression and bipolar as they're finding. And it's so nice when people can treat themselves without using medication when it's mild forms of these diseases. And I really like that you talked about your natural high in the book. Yeah, I definitely get my natural high now. I discovered yoga and the the peace that it brings to the mind and the clarity. So I I really love yoga and the strength that you get through it. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm almost in the best shape of my life because of my yoga. Um, And I do bar. I I walk. I love to walk. I I, um, have a race bike that I love to go on. It's for me, exercise is huge and it's hard. I wish everybody who has a mental illness could exercise and discover the high, but it's so difficult if you're depressed. It's almost impossible to get out the door to exercise. Well, I think that's what makes Yeah, I think that the society itself doesn't realize that humans are basically hunter gatherers. And if we're not out there hunting and gathering every day, our brains don't really adapt to the sedentary lifestyle. And we've really got to push that, especially people like yourselves who are spokesperson, that even if they just walk up a steep hill, they're going to get a little adrenaline rush. They're going to get the deep breathing that you get from yoga. And it's going to be a very um, healing part of their day. And it will help them overcome some of their states of depression, of course, when it's mild or moderate as opposed to severe. Right, like the the kind that you can't get out of bed. But I, I agree with you 100%. You know, I'm very fortunate because I I was given this platform to speak out about bipolar, and I that's why I share my story. I think a lot of people wonder why do you share this story? Because it's reality. Bipolar isn't something that looks beautiful. It it has risky, ugly behaviors, and I want to talk about that. I want to save relationships. I want to save marriages, and I'm very fortunate to have to have a husband who focused on my illness, not my behavior. And I truly believe if more people focus on the illness instead of the behaviors and know it's bipolar, that it's an illness not meant to hurt others on purpose. It's an illness that the person wants to make themselves feel better and they do whatever they have to. And it's very narcissistic. Yeah, although, I mean, in this country, one person out of every five suffers from some form of mental or cognitive issue, whether that be depression, bipolar, and all kinds of variations. One out of four. It's uh, one out of right, four 25%. Now. Yeah, I'm a CPA. I should have been able to figure that out. 25% is <laughs> one you out know, of four. This is kind of a statistic, 60 million, which would be 65 of the largest cities right. in the U.S. Right. All, that's the amount of people that have mental illness. Yes. And one more staggering uh, thought is 22 veterans a day die by suicide. And yeah, and that's, we, we have a, we whole, we have a very higher. significant homelessness issue here in San Diego when over, well over 50% of them are veterans, many of whom have 
mental issues. It's very, very sad how this nation has not treated its the people who've served the country well, particularly here in so-called America's finest city. But, um, and the only way it's going to change is if, as communities, we wrap our arms exactly. around it and we start doing things like cancer. Look at what happened mm-hmm. all the, you know, with all these races and awareness right. Right. and the pink. If we could do something like that for mental health, but it's going to take everybody to come together, and that's why speaking out is going to help that. Absolutely. Now, you know, Susie, you're heading down to North County of San Diego here for the Carlsbad Marathon, running the half marathon, as I will be, for the International Bipolar Foundation. What can you tell us about the work that you're doing for them? Well, look for us. We are in these neon yellowish shirts. Okay. And basically, their foundation is just fabulous because they want to bring awareness, first of all, but they're doing research. Um, and we need more research to find the right drugs and the right therapies for bipolar that can really reach mm-hmm. out and help everybody. Because that's the key. People always want to know, well, what's the solution? What, what can I do to get over this? You'll never get over it. You live with it for the rest of your life. But we can come up with better drugs, better treatment, better coping mechanisms. And that's the key is what are you going to use in your life to take over that mania? Mm-hmm. Because drugs take it away, and people want it back. So they stop their medication so they can go back to that risky behavior because it's more exciting. And we need to find drugs that can help um, in a way that people want to stay on them rather than go off Mm -hmm. of them. So, Susie, did you happen to exhibit any of these um, behavioral challenges when you were running during your running career or only after you'd had your daughter? Um, I definitely um, showed them during my running running career and looking back, but you wouldn't think, oh, she's bipolar, because the running was a coping mechanism to keep me more level. It basically wiped me out every day to a point where, okay, I could finally sit down at the end of the night. But if I if I wasn't running, I had enormous amounts of energy. And I could tackle 10 projects at a time, never really completing them. But I had this enormous amount of energy. So running definitely played um, a part in keeping me stable. I always wonder, I'm like, I wonder how many people are self-medicating themselves through their running. And I know it's a a huge amount. Well, I I just read an article about some guy who's run 10,000-something straight days in a row. And I said, well, now there's some serious mental illness. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And it's probably that's the therapy that is getting him through his life. Susie, I also wonder... God bless him. (laughs) Yeah, I know. God bless him. That's quite an accomplishment. I also wonder, did postpartum depression play any role with you? I mean, that's another topic where there's some stigma where I don't think there's enough public discourse on how serious it is. Yeah, they have studies that are relating um, that childbirth can bring on bipolar mm-hmm. in some pa- in some pa- patients. And I know now after my childbirth that something changed in me dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, they thought I had postpartum, but I knew that it was something different. I, I couldn't have guessed I was bipolar, but sure. I knew something was terribly wrong with me. Uh, but I, one of my issues that I want to make clear to, you know, not an issue. One of my things that I'm really trying to make people aware of is I was basically misdiagnosed in 10 minutes Mm. 
mm. from a doctor. Well. I was told I was depressed when I was really bipolar, given yeah. the wrong medication. Oh. That was not a good combination with somebody who was being bipolar. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, I didn't know the question to ask. Um, I, I didn't know to speak up and tell my doctor of my medical history and my family. And the doctor never asked me. And uh, now I've learned that each doctor on an average spends seven and a half minutes with a patient to diagnose them as depressed and give them these dangerous drugs that can cause such havoc on their life. To me, is mind-boggling, and that that part of our system has to change. Well, yeah, I mean, insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies basically control the universe. It's sad, um, in, in the sense that we're so focused on symptoms as as opposed to early prevention, detections, cures, whatever particular issues we might right. be talking about medically. It's not just with regard to depression, bipolar. It, it, I think it and cuts that's across the, key, the spectrum. Early detection, right? right. We do right. that for breast cancer, you right. know. Early detection. Why can't we have some system in place for mental illness yeah. for early detection? Absolutely. So, Susie Faber Hamilton, uh, you wrote Fast Girl. We got about thirty seconds here. How can people buy your book? Where can they find it? Um, they can go on Amazon, and um, I think that's probably the easiest way. It's in Barnes and Noble. Okay. So it's basically in all the bookstores. Um, and I, this book isn't painting a beautiful picture on bipolar. It's sure. showing the bad behavior. So. People can recognize that in loved ones. And um, I know my book has saved lives. I, I've gotten letters from people who said they were going to take their life, and they read my book. And it gives me the chills to think that, okay, I, I accomplished what I wanted, as sure. difficult as this book was. Um, it It's helping people. That's great. Susie, really, really appreciate you being on the air with us. Also, Kathy Kinane, thanks for coming in. and fill, You did a great job filling in for Joe. Also, big thank mm-hmm. you to Justin Hart running our board, Craig Blanke, Dave Sniff, everybody here at KFMB who allows us to do this great show. Again, seven first-place awards from San Diego Press Club in the last three years. No, we're not competitive at all here. Um, <laughs> we keep track. But again, Susie, thank you. Kathy, thank you. Everybody, make sure you keep moving. It's your money and your life. Keep moving. Don't sit still. Have a good week, everybody. Take care. Take care.